Well, let's take our Bibles and open them to 1 Peter chapter 1. Take your journals, locate week number 8. And that's where we are. Keep both of those handy in front of you as you take notes. And as together we walk through the next portion of Scripture in this first letter from Peter to help maybe provide with some framework as far as where we've been and, and where we're headed. Maybe an, a, a, just a brief review. Let me share with you something we did as parents that I think is similar to what Peter is doing in this book. When our kids were really small and we tucked them in at night, like most of parents, and most of you who are, who are parents, we would um, bring the covers up around their neck or we'd you know, get in bed with them and snuggle, those kinds of things. And we would always ask a few questions that could, could be answered with one word. Whether the word was forever or always, that was the, the answer to every question. So we'd say things like this. We'd say, how long will, will dad be your daddy? Or if it was Julie, she'd say, how long will mommy be your mommy? We'd say, how long will you be in our family? How long will we love you? And so we just had questions like that that would always be answered with forever. And of course, you hear the little, you know, two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old little voice, forever, you know, something like that, right? And that would just feed our fire, so we'd keep asking questions. You know, how long will, will you be in our family and be our son or our daughter? How long will we love you? And just made a lot of fun with tuck-ins like that. And I think the reason we did that was because it helped settle their position. Loved, secure. It settled that position because we knew as they got older, there would be certain privileges that they would need to embrace both positive and negative. There'd be certain experiences, certain expectations. In other words, there were certain things that came with being part of our family and those would be experienced better if you had your position settled well. I think Peter's doing something similar in his first letter. You know, he spends the first chapter and a half really talking a lot about our great salvation that we have in God through Christ. Beginning about chapter 2, verse 11, he spends the rest of the book really in many specifics about these privileges we have. And by the way, in Peter's letter, most of them center around suffering and hostility and endurance and perseverance. He says it's a blessing, it's a privilege to experience that. And that privilege comes from this position we have. And so Peter really says, let's settle your position well because it will help you endure the privilege you have of suffering later. And so we've been knee-deep in the first section of this letter, chapter 1 through about chapter 2, verse 10 or 11. We've been looking at this great position that we've been afforded because of God's work in Christ. Specifically, we're in chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. We've been there three weeks, if you recall. In week 1 of this section... We saw the two verbs in which Peter says to set your hope fully and then to live holy. Recall those two verbs? Set your hope fully on the grace that's coming at the revelation of Christ. We examined that. And then the idea of living holy as God is holy. Then week two, we took an interlude and Stan talked to us more about this revelation of Jesus Christ. That was last week and what that was and what it entailed and how we should be prepping for that. And now in week three, we're going to look at the final verb in this section. It's found in verse 17. So we're going to unpack verses 17 through 21 and kind of get a, a, a little tighter grip on how we should live now as chosen sojourners 
with a settled position, how we're to live in God and under God. In fact, here's what you're going to see today. I'll just go ahead and kind of show you our destination up front. Here's our take-home truth. Go ahead and jot it down, take a picture, uh, and then just kind of tuck this in your pocket. We're going to see this very clearly from these five verses, that the foundation for living fearfully is seeing God correctly. This is the third verb he uses, that we should conduct ourselves with fear. We're going to see that he roots all of that in the, um, um, can I say the, the ability or the, the, the foundation of, of seeing God correctly. So will you say this with me one time, and then we're going to unpack it in the verses. Together, church, the foundation for living fearfully is seeing God correctly. Let's watch this unfold and emerge. We'll see it bubble up in verses 17 through 21 of 1 Peter 1. Now, I'll be using our lab today. For those who are new, maybe you can guess with us, uh, we utilize the lab often as a way to not only make sure you are hearing God's Word taught, but it's a good way for you to see and to visualize how we teach God's Word. It's also just a, a very pragmatic way to help teach others how to study their Bible. And so you're going to kind of watch us walk through this text. You'll glean not only the truth through your ears, but you'll also glean it through your eyes. And our prayer is that we will continue to learn all about God through His Word. So let's dig in, can we? First Peter 1, I'll begin in verse 17. He says here that if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, and the word if there, it could be the word sense. The point is this is what they do. They call on God as their Father. He's speaking to believers as a relationship and so this is a factual statement. Since this is happening, knowing this is happening, look at the third verb here, conduct yourselves with fear. See that? The first one was to set your hope fully. The second one was to be holy. Now he says to conduct yourselves with fear. If you recall previously in verse 16, verse 15, he did use the word conduct uh, already to conduct yourself in a holy manner. Now he adds to that and he says, conduct yourselves, and can I just use the word fearfully? And, and really what he means here is to, to live with reverential awe. He's not speaking of the kind of fear that shrinks back and is negatively cowering. It is the word phobos, but he's not meaning it in a negative way. He's saying there's a healthy type of reverence, the kind you might have with your stove that you use it, you like it, you're glad you have it, but you know how to use it. You know how to approach it, and you're aware that it can burn. Are you with me? So he's just saying here, there's a healthy kind of reverence that should wrap all of our actions. In fact, just write this word in, would you? Just write the word reverence. It might be a good summary word for what's happening in this phrase. Peter here is calling upon us to have a reverential awe in how we live, and he roots this, watch this, in this relationship we have with God our Father, who in this verse is called our judge. You notice that? Our Father who judges. So write the word relationship here. Because Peter connects our ability to live reverentially to seeing God and understanding He is a Father who judges. And notice how he says, judges impartially. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. Because as good as dad as you may think you've been, you weren't this good. You didn't judge impartially. You have a laundry list of mistakes just like I do. 
There's no perfect dad in this room. But aren't you thankful that's not true of God our Father? He is the perfect Father who's never misjudged. Your ethnicity, your pedigree, your position, it doesn't interfere with God's evaluation. As he, um, you know, looks and decides and discerns, the word here means to discern, to judge, he doesn't do that with, you know, anything flawing his vision. He's not got a misperceived perception. It's always just and righteous and spot on. And so Peter here says, since this is the father we know who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, here's how we should live. Reverentially, in a, in a wonderment, in an amazement, in a healthy fear of this God who is our father and who judges perfectly. Now, the question in your mind should be this. When does God do this? <laughs> When does he judge us perfectly? How does that happen? And, and can you walk me through that, Todd? Great question. Why don't we do that? Because I think what Peter has in mind here is not the judgment that took place regarding your sin. That happened at the cross in Christ, which is why Paul would write in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation. There's no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. The church says, hallelujah, right? So there must be something else going on here. What kind of judging is going on that's impartial that actually is motivating for living fearfully? I think Peter has two things in mind. I think they're rooted in Scripture. It's Hebrews 12 and 1 Corinthians 3. Just jot these down. Discuss them in your small groups. Maybe use these as ancillary passages to talk about this concept. But Hebrews 12 discusses God's current evaluation, judgment, correction, discipline of His children. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about a future judgment of God's children. Now watch this. It's not involving our sin. Christ has already done that. But these two judgments do involve our sonship or daughtership and our service. Let me walk you through this briefly. In Hebrews 12, the writer there lays out clearly that God does discipline his children. He uses the word chastise. Another word could be judge or correct, train. This is what God is doing. And often he does this when there is sin, when there's disobedience in order to keep us from straying. This is what every good and loving father would do naturally on the earth. Are you with me? If the son or daughter is straying, they're going to bring them back in line because they love them. So Hebrews 12 talks about a current evaluating judging, measuring, uh, kind of correcting that God does to his children. But watch this, it's not because of sin. This is where many churches, and I think preachers make this mistake, they only assume that discipline and chastening and correction comes because of sin. But Hebrews 12 says the exact opposite. It may happen around the time of sin. It may happen when there's some string, but it happens because you're a son or a daughter. It's relationship that brings chastening. And so this is the kind of judgment, the kind of evaluating, the kind of sanctification, correcting, discipline that Peter may have in mind. That present tense kind of judging where God says, hey, I'm going to scoot you in line here because you belong to me. I'm going to bring this into your life to help further sanctify you, to further refine you. I'm going to cause this and do that because I love you and I'm your spiritual father. And so I'm going to do these things to keep you really straight. That's a type of judging that God does in his, to his kids in the present tense. 
In the future, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, there's a judgment that will occur. The metaphor he uses is fire. And he says that in the future time after Christ returns, then all of our deeds, all of our service, all of our works for God will be tried in a fire. And he continues the metaphor by saying this, that what works or what service you did for Christ that were done with pure motives, the right motives, they'll emerge from this fire as genuine. They'll be proven and they'll come out as gold, silver, or precious stones. Those that are done from wrong motives, 1 Corinthians 3 says, they'll be burned up and they'll be considered wood, hay, or stubble. And so the metaphor is this. There's a fiery judgment coming. It's often called the judgment seat of Christ. In fact, if you have some church experience, you may have heard the word bema, called the bema seat. That's just the Greek word for this moment. It's when Christ judges the service of his children and rewards them accordingly. He rewards us based on what emerges from the fire as um, done with right motives. And so just hear this. When Peter's talking here about a father who judges impartially, he's referring to how he, and I'm going to use this phrase rightly, how he's raising us and how he's rewarding us. So do not hear this negatively. Don't think, oh, there's that whole verse about God judging us. No, hear the word father. And this is what every good, loving father does. He raises his children. He has a responsibility to them to help them not stray, to keep them focused, and he rewards them. This is what God is doing, but watch this. He's not just doing this like your earthly dad. He's doing this perfectly. Isn't that great? There's not a chance that God's not going to raise or reward his children perfectly. Amen. That's so comforting. This is why seeing God this way in this relational fashion leads to conducting ourselves with fear. Because we know God will do all that he needs to do to bring us into the image of Christ and he'll reward us at the end. That's what every good, loving father does. As I meditated on this verse, and just thought about it for several days. My mind went back to being raised with my, by my mom and dad in our home. And uh, they weren't perfect either. But man, I, I have a deep love and a great respect for my parents. I think you know that. Um, I just am so thankful for God's sovereignty and placing me in their home. Um, and they just had a unique way of doing both of these as well. They weren't perfect. Um, but they raised and they rewarded and they held me accountable. They kept me in line. Uh, and I, I never once, not for a millisecond, thought I was unloved. And yet, not for a millisecond did I think I wasn't accountable. <laughs> My parents just had a unique way of making sure I knew you've got a settled position here and you've got some settled expectations as well. I remembered a couple of moments uh, once I was probably ninth or 10th grade. I had just been a Christian for a couple of years. So God was sanctifying me and I was figuring some things and I had a couple of rough spots along the way. And during one of those kind of dry patches, I remember thinking, do I have to go to church? Do I have to go to church with my parents? 
I want to be my own person. I'll find my own church. And just kind of having these thoughts. So I thought I'd test the waters. And one day driving to school with my dad, he drove and I was riding actually. We were riding in this 1970 two-door blue Maverick. Who remembers what a Ford Maverick looked like? Okay, you're old like me. So we're riding in this Maverick and I say to my dad, hey, you, you think I have to go to church with you guys all the time? And he just says, no, you don't have to. Just so calmly driving. I remember this so vividly. We were riding around Belvoir Avenue, honey, Brainerd Road. And I thought, my dad just unlocked my life. He just gave me freedom to do whatever I wanted to. And before I could say a word, he said, again, you don't have to, but you do have to be willing to live with the consequences of your decision. And so my mind began to think, would I rather live in a loving home going to church with my parents or would I rather live with consequences? I'm not sure what those are right now. <laughs> and do I want to ask? And so I chose not to ask and just say, yeah, I'm in for whatever church you go to. I'm in, let's do it. <laughs> I knew just like, you know what? I'm loved here. And yet it's clear there's some expectations and he's going to hold me to those. It's just interesting how all that works, you know. My mom, same way, often in those years, I'd say, hey, we're going out tonight, you know, me and some friends or me and a friend. And, and whether I drove or not, she would say to me this a lot. She'd say, hey, make sure that, that you go where you say you're going to go and that you do what you say you're going to do. I mean, she'd look me right in the eye, very sternly, but with a smile, just make sure and remind me that I've told her X, make sure I don't do Y. And what's amazing is when I'd come home, she would ask me that. Hey, and she'd repeat what I told her. Did you go? Did you do? And there were times her questions, it was like she came with me, was in the back seat. I mean, I've heard the phrase, you know, moms have eyes in the back of their heads. They also have them on the sides. They have them in their feet. They have them on their palms. They have them on their shoulders. I think moms just have intuition. They just know, right? And she would sometimes ask me questions. I'm like, how did you know to ask me that? And yet I never felt unloved, but I always knew this is what parents do. They hold you accountable. They would raise you right. And, and my parents were also just really good at the rewarding aspect. Like, hey, you do what you say, you'll get increased trust. I thought about that in this realm. And as much respect and love as I have for my parents, God is infinitely greater than they are. He does all of that perfectly. And that's really what Peter says here should motivate us to conduct ourselves with fear that God has our best interest in mind in raising us spiritually, so to speak, and will reward us. He's judging, evaluating, discerning, correcting. This is what fathers do. And God is doing that as our spiritual father, and so we should conduct ourselves with fear. And notice he says here, by the way, this should be throughout the time of our exile. Our entire Christian life should be characterized in this way. We're sojourners here, and I think Peter here is describing our entire Christian life We've not yet reached our heavenly home, and so let's have this type of atmosphere around our actions. Fearful, reverential awe of God because he is a loving father who judges. But then Peter does something quite interesting. He adds some bookend reasoning. Like that's enough reason, wouldn't you think? But he then adds these words here, knowing that. So he kind of appeals to our mind one more time. It says, yes, you should see God as a loving father who judges perfectly. And so live this way. But let me just add one more thing. Knowing this about God. So I would say, write this word, write reasoning here. Can you do that? In fact, there's really 
reasoning all around this verb. But this reasoning is really aimed at seeing God as our ransomer. A little odd word, but notice what he says here. He says, we know that you were ransomed. This is what God has done. As our father, he's purchased us. He's bought us. He's done something our earthly fathers could never do. And I love the way Peter here kind of, um, you know, points the attention back to earthly fathers. He says this, God's ransomed you, watch this, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Here he means earthly fathers. So God has done something your earthly fathers could never do. All your earthly fathers could do, maybe he would try to give you something physically. He says like silver or gold. But that can never buy your eternal salvation. All that your earthly fathers could do was futile. That's what you inherited from them. It doesn't last eternally. In fact, here he gives kind of a negative aspect of, um, or I should say the negative angle to redemption, to ransomness, by saying it can't be done with perishable things. Your money, your fame, your job, your position, those things will never purchase pardon. So God is not dependent upon what you inherited physically. God does not count on what's happened to us in an earthly fashion. They are futile. So hear this, church. It doesn't matter how many digits are in your inheritance. It will not buy you eternal life. It doesn't matter how many acres are in your inheritance. It will not gain you entrance into the kingdom of God. That comes from God who purchased you, not with perishable things that your earthly fathers can leave you. That will never work. Instead, he bought you with the precious blood of Christ. So watch this. He owns you in a way no one else does. Amen? So he has the right. He's the owner of us spiritually and physically. And so he can judge us. He can reward us. He can be the perfect father because he owns us. He's purchased us with the precious blood of Christ. Here, Peter goes further and describes it as the blood of Christ being that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The lamb is a reference to the Old Testament. And every year, the Israelites would make their trek to um, you know, Jerusalem, or they would have the Day of Atonement, and they would slaughter a lamb. And this was the annual exercise to gain forgiveness. When Christ came, he was the once-for-all atonement for our sins. Perfect, just, satisfactory. There's no more need now for lambs to be slaughtered. Jesus has been the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, John said. And so we depend on the blood of Christ as the price, as the purchase means by which God secured our redemption. It's perfect. By the way, don't you love it? In this verse, Peter describes not only, or I should say in this passage, Peter describes not only God's fatherhood as as without any kind of favoritism, but perfect. He describes Christ's redemption as perfect. Look what he says about his blood. It's without blemish, without spot. So everything in this text is leaning into the perfection and the beauty, the splendor of God's work in being our father and providing redemption. So this, I guess, this leans into why we have reverential awe. God's done what no one else can do. 
He goes further in the last little bit to describe more about Christ, whose blood was perfect, without blemish, without spot. He was the lamb. It says that he, speaking of Christ, we're continuing in this thought of, of this reasoning. This is what we should know, that God has ransomed us through Christ, who was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This speaks to creation. So redemption is not an afterthought. God didn't wake up and say, man, Adam, you blew this. What am I going to do now? And I guess maybe I could talk to the son and see if he'd maybe go and die for us. Before creation, it was always God's plan to purchase a people unto himself through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God's son. I'll say more on the podcast this week about the idea of being foreknown and then being made manifest. Do you see that? So he's revealed at the right time the fullness of times, I think Paul says. And he's revealed in these last times for the sake of you. This makes everything so personal. See, often we see God's work in eternity past and we see God's work regarding salvation and we think of, of largeness and vastness. And it is, but here Peter says, by the way, all of God's work was at the right time for the sake of you. Isn't that beautiful? Again, it just kind of brings in this thought of God as a perfect father. He loves and then he begins to modify this last pronoun, you. He describes who the you is. Look what he says. Who through him are believers in God. Now he's here repeating what he said about these feudal things we inherited from our forefathers. They don't purchase redemption. And here he says, how are we believers in God? It's not through anything we've done. It's through the revelation of Christ at the right time for us. When God put him forth. So everything in this text is leaning to God's work on our behalf. That's how and why we are believers in God. It's because of God's work in Christ for us, his perfect life, his shed blood. Now, of course, the, next of the, the rest of this text then describes really what God did. Look what it says, raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So God raised Christ enabled Christ then to ascend and is now seated at the right hand of God in full authority, Matthew 28. This is what God has done for us. Why? He finishes the text by saying this, so that your faith and hope are in God. And here's what's very interesting. You should draw a line from the word God in 121 back to the word God in 1.3. Because in 1.3, he connects hope and God just as he does in 121. Remember 1.3, he says, blessed be God who has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And now he ends in verse 21 by saying this, man, God has done everything he's done in Christ so that your faith and hope are in God. I love the way Peter is just purging and eliminating any type of man-made effort from the equation. It's not by your gold or silver. It's not by your earthly fathers. It's not by your effort. It's not by your merit. It is by God's mercy shown in Christ. That's why we are believers and can have faith and hope in God. Do you see how he's settling our position? He's about to lay out a lot of specifics soon. Don't worry. Difficult things to embrace perhaps, but he's first and foremost settling our position so that we are secure in this incredible relationship we have with God our Father, who is, watch this now, a loving judge and a loving ransomer. I know that's a word we probably haven't used much. It might even be a word. 
But this is what the text lays out for us. When we see God as a loving judge and as as the loving ransomer, what happens? We begin to conduct ourselves with reverential awe, with the right kind of fear. We live appropriately and fearfully. And so the third verb happens in this fashion, seeing God correctly as loving judge and as loving ransomer or redeemer. This is why I say to you that the simple truth today is that if we are going to live fearfully, if we're going to conduct ourselves for our entire Christian life in fear, the foundation for that is seeing God correctly. And in this text, seeing God correctly means seeing him as a loving judge, raising his kids, and as a loving redeemer. This is what what God is doing. And it should cause us now to be in wonder and awe of God. Now, before I make one application, let me just remind you, this is not inconsistent with the overall section of 13 through 21. Do you recall how even in the first two verbs, we were called upon to see God correctly? In the second verb, he said to be holy. Watch the next phrase. As I am holy from Old Testament. Remember four or five times in Leviticus? So he's calling on the church to be holy because they know God is holy. When he says to set your hope fully on the grace that is to come at the revelation of Christ, he's asking us for to see, to see the coming of Christ, to have you know, the, the future in view, to pray, Lord, come quickly. So all of these verbs are connected to and tied to the idea of seeing God correctly. So never underestimate the importance of seeing God correctly. It is the foundation for living fearfully. Now, maybe you're wondering, well, Todd, what do I do with this? Maybe you're asking yourself, what now? Like, like when I leave here, just, do I just take this principle, tuck it in my pocket, and, and call it good? Let me provide for you one action step that could be life-changing In fact, this is the one non-negotiable, no-nonsense application. It's so basic that when you hear it, you'll probably be tempted to be dismissive. But I want to call you to be attentive because this is the instrumental first step in seeing God correctly, which is the foundation for living fearfully. Here's the one application. Read your Bible. And don't act so disappointed. (laughs) That's the temptation to be dismissive. Instead, I want to ask you to be attentive because I could have worded it like this. Devour the scriptures. Feast on God's word. You could word it however you want. My point is this. If you want to see God correctly, then you must dive into his self-revelation where God has revealed what he's like. And that is in the B-I-B-L-E, period. And if you're not reading the Bible, you're never going to see God correctly. 
So my pastoral, no-nonsense, non-negotiable, very simple and basic application today is this. Read your Bible. You see, understand this, church. Many people live by their own desired depiction of God. They don't live by the declared description of God. And there is a difference. We often love to create a God that fits our lifestyle. He's not too big to cramp us, but he's not too small not to kind of give us a little bit of hope, optimism. He just fits nicely into the things that we think are okay. And we kind of craft the rules and adjust the parameters to make sure God fits in there. And so he just, it's just a really good addition to our life. The unadmitted reality is that that's no God at all. That's an idol of your own making. Now, if you're wondering what this looks like, just look at our culture. As we have digressed further and further into this immoral sexual revolution, I find that it's interesting that many of them are not claiming there's no God. They're just claiming that God actually approves of this now. I I find that stunning that we can just craft a God to be what we want him to be, to fit the sins we now want to embrace. See, that's not a God at all. That's an idol. And what we say when we do that is that we're God. And that's blasphemous and dangerous. So do not depend on your own desired depiction of God. Dive into the declared description of God. This is how you see God correctly. Yes, read the Bible. See him revealed for what he and who he says he is. Devour the Old Testament scriptures. Absorb God's revelation of himself to the nations. Study the gospels. Learn the ways of Jesus who was God in the flesh. Investigate the New Testament letters and stand on the truth as as given by the apostles under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that tell us who God is and what he's like. If you want to start living fearfully, see God correctly, and that begins and continues by engaging in the first and foremost habit of all genuine Christians. Read your Bible. We'll get there in a few weeks, but Peter's next chapter begins with encouraging those believers to to desire the sincere milk of the word. So Peter's headed here. We're just kind of beating him to the punch, so to speak. And I want you to know, if you want to see God correctly so that you live fearfully, there's one action step to take. Read the Bible voraciously. Now, to help with this, I want to ask you to engage in a simple assessment for a moment, and then we'll land the plane and be done. I want to try to gauge where our church is on this. It is informal. It will be anonymous. And it'll be one word. But I'm going to ask you humbly as your pastor, would you help us, the elders, get a, get a sense of maybe where we are on engaging with the Bible? So here's what I want you to do. In the back of that chair in front of you, there's probably a card. It's either red or white. Depends on which, is, which end is facing you. Would you just pull one of those out? And I want you to answer a, a question with one word, either a yes or a no, to help us get a humble assessment of where we are in reading and engaging the scriptures. Here's the question I want to ask you. I just want you to answer with no name and one word. You ready? Here's the question. I engage the Bible five times a week. Just on that card, 
Just put yes or no. I don't want your name. Um, I just want a yes or no. And we're going to try between both services to get a simple assessment of how many folks in our church, what's the percentage of our body that's actually engaging the Bible five times a week? Now, I'll be honest with you. The number five is the number we picked. There's not a verse to back that up. So there's some good honesty for you, okay? Uh, we could have gone for seven. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? Could have maybe said three. Here's what I'm thinking with five, and here's what our, our, is in our thoughts. You know, if on Sunday there's an intentional engagement from those who are faithfully attending here, those who call this their church home, and we know we're just going to bring the Word of God strong, you're going to hear it, we're going to preach it, we're going to all engage in it, be under its authority. If out of those remaining six days, if five of them, you said, man, I just want to engage in God's Word, I would consider that a win. Six out of seven, like, I'll take that any day. You're with me? I want seven out of seven, Amen. For assessment, we thought, let's just aim for six out of seven and see how we do on this. See what our current status is. And maybe you're wondering, well, Todd, what do you mean by engage the Bible five days a week? The word I'm looking for is intentionality. And here's what I mean. There's a, a time in your day when you either set your eyes or ears on the word of God intentionally. Maybe you begin your day by reading the daily bread and there's a verse for the day. Fantastic. Maybe you close your day by reading the scriptures with your spouse, a chapter a night, or maybe it's a paragraph a night. Fantastic. Maybe you drive to work and you start the audio Bible, and so you listen while you drive to work. Say it with me. Fantastic. Maybe you're jogging, and so you have your AirPods in and you're listening to the Bible that way. Fantastic. Uh, maybe your kids go off to school and you're at a place in a season where you can spend 30 minutes in a precept study fantastic. Maybe you have all preschool kids and you have hardly have five minutes. And so you try to, during nap time, just get a few minutes squeezed in for a verse or two. Fantastic. Are you with me? I'm, there's a lot of openness here for how you go about some of this. What I'm asking for is intentionality. Is there an intentional time in your day when you say, I'm going to get in front of God's word, either audibly or visually on purpose? I'm doing that five times a week, five days a week. That's all I'm asking. So if, would you help me get an assessment of our church in this? Because here's what I believe. We'll only see God correctly to the degree that we are immersed in his word. This is why it's hard for some people to think about sending people to far-reached places of the least-reached places in the globe because they have no concept that God is a missionary God. They can't fathom why they would have such a loose grip on things and people. But this is actually the heart of our God. He's a missionary God. He's gathering his people from every corner of the globe. And the ordained means by which he's doing that is his church. And so the church is a sent body. And if all that strikes you as odd... Can I say to you humbly but boldly, you haven't read much of the Bible. The Bible is a missionary book. It's a multiplying book. It's a sending story. So I'm asking you, let's take a, a humble assessment of our status. How are we doing engaging the word? Because it will tell us a lot about ourselves spiritually. And I think the more we engage the word, the more we'll see God correctly and the more we'll live fearfully for him. So as you take this simple survey, you can turn it in 
as you leave in a basket in the back. You can use the communion tables during communion, drop them off there. You can hand them to me or one of our prayer team members at the close of the service. Maybe you'll come and just pray and say, Todd, help pray for me. I had somebody at first service come and say, Todd, pray for me that I'll just have a greater appetite for God's word. So I don't know how you want to turn that in, but I'm asking every single person in this auditorium just to take the one question, anonymous informal survey, with a yes or no. I engage the Bible five days a week. And let us get a, an understanding of where we are so we can know more effectively how to grow further. See, here's my prayer. And with this, I close. That we would be like the two disciples who walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. They didn't know it was Jesus. But as they walked on this road, he explained to them, this is Luke 24, he explained to them everything about himself from the Old Testament. That's what the Bible says. These are the word scriptures, but it says, he explained to them all about himself through the scriptures. Then later, when they described that experience, here's what they said. They said, did not our hearts burn within us as he explained himself through the scriptures? That's a lifestyle of reverential awe. That's two guys living in wonder and amazement and a healthy fear of God. And how did they get it? Because they understood about Jesus through the scriptures. That's what I'm praying will happen to you, to me, to us increasingly. That the longer and the more we dive into the Bible, God will give us the type of lifestyle where our hearts Burn within us for God. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.